Good morning, dear friends. Today is the 12th of July in the year 2012, and we are in the Stillwater Meditation Hall of the Upper Hamlet in Plum Village. You've talked to your friends about meditation, right? You go back to school this fall, right? And maybe you can tell your friends about meditation. What are we going to say to our friends about meditation? What is meditation? To meditate is to look, to look deeply, to listen deeply, to look deeply, looking not only with our eyes, but with our mind, with our heart. And when we listen, it's not only with our ears, but with our mind, with our heart. So meditating is looking deeply. Meditating is listening deeply. It's easy, easy to understand. Meditating means taking the time to look deeply, to listen deeply. There's concentration. When we look, we only look. We try not to think. We just look. And because we are concentrated, we can see things that other people cannot see. That's meditation. Meditation is looking with concentration to be able to see things that others cannot see. Meditating is also listening, listening with concentration. We can hear things that other people can't hear. For example, when we look at this flower, this orchid, if we have concentration, we can look deeply. With concentration, we will discover things. We will see that in this flower, there is a cloud. There is a cloud floating in this flower. That's a fact. This is not imagination. Because we know very well that if there is no cloud, there won't be any rain, and the flower cannot grow. So there's no image of the cloud, but that cloud is really there in the flower. If we remove the water, if we remove the cloud from this flower, the flower would cease to be there. So a person who meditates can see a cloud in the flower. And like when I drink tea, there's a kind of meditation called tea meditation. When we drink tea, we look deeply into the tea, and because we look with concentration, we can see a cloud there in the tea, right? That cloud is no longer floating in the sky. The cloud is in the glass. And a person who doesn't meditate may not be able to see the cloud in the tea. But you who practice meditation, you look at the tea and you can see the cloud. The cloud not in the form floating in the, floating in the sky, but in its liquid form. Right? So when we meditate, we can see things that other people can't see. Let's look again at the flower.
We can see the sun in the flower. Because without the light, nothing can grow. Without light, without heat, these things cannot grow. You know, in winter, it's very difficult for flowers to grow. It's cold, and we have to wait for spring to see the flowers grow and bloom. So when I look deeply with a lot of attention, I can see light in this flower. Even at night, there's light. The sun has already gone down outside. But looking at the flower, I can still see sunlight in that flower. So I see the sunlight in the flower. If we remove that sunlight from the flower, the flower can no longer exist. And if we continue to look, we can see many other things in that flower, like the earth. If there's no earth, how can the flower grow? There are minerals. There's the fertilizer, the compost, all those things. If you look into the flower and you don't see the sunlight, the clouds, the earth, the minerals, then you haven't really seen that flower. To see the flower deeply, you have to be able to recognize the non-flower elements that are in it. It's pretty easy. Meditating just means having the time to look. We look not just with our eyes, but with our mind. And with our mind, we have mindfulness and concentration. And that's why we can discover so many things in what we look at. We see the things that other people cannot see. For example, when we look at a child, a friend, and if we look deeply, we can see in him or in her in her we can see a seed of anger. There is a seed of anger. In him or in her. That boy isn't angry, but the seed of anger is there in him. If we come along and water that seed of anger in him. We say something to provoke anger. That boy will change right away. There is anger, there is violence, and that boy can turn into a bomb ready to explode. So in every one of us, there is a seed of anger. There's a seed of anger sleeping in me, sleeping in you, 
has that seed of anger. But in me, the seed of anger is pretty small, really very small, because I have practiced meditation. And we can reduce the size of the seed of anger in us. So that's why it's not that easy to get a practitioner really angry. That boy has the seed of anger, and if that seed in him is too big, he will get angry very easily. And he suffers enormously because the anger in him is so much. That seed is so big. A boy or a girl who has a big seed of anger like that, we know that child is not happy. Because if there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of violence. What he does is full of anger, full of violence, and that makes other people suffer. And this person is the victim of his own anger. He is the victim of his violence. And up until now, no one has helped him or her to reduce the anger and the violence, to minimize, to reduce the amount of anger and violence in her or in him. If you're that person's friend, if you're his or her friend, think about that. Can you do something to help him or her suffer less? Is there something you could do to help that person to suffer less? The answer is yes. And when you go back to school, you can look. Look at that kid who has a lot of anger and violence. Look deeply and ask yourself the question, what can I do to help him or her to suffer less, to minimize that anger and violence in her, in him? Because with an enormous anger like that, you know that kid is really suffering a lot. Right? If you practice meditation, you can look again and you can see in him that even if there are big seeds of anger and violence, there are also seeds of compassion. A seed of compassion, a seed of kindness. Maybe not big enough right now to make that person happy. So what can we do to water that seed of goodness, of kindness in her or in him. That is
is the practice of watering. We don't water the seed of anger. If we water the seed of anger in him or her, he or she will suffer and will make you suffer. So we should not water the seed of anger. We should do our best to water the seed of kindness in him or her because he has the seed of kindness. She has the seed of understanding, a seed of wisdom, a seed of goodness. Everyone has those seeds too. Even a very violent person, they suffer. So you can find something to say. You can come to him or her and say, My friend, do you know that you have a seed of goodness, a seed of kindness in you? You have beauty, you have freshness, you have kindness in you. So we need to know how to water those seeds. I remember one time there was a couple who came to Plum Village from Bordeaux. They came for the Buddha's birthday celebration. And I gave a Dharma talk about selective watering because we only want to water the good seeds. To make someone happy, we have to know how to water the good seeds in him or her. We should not water the seeds of anger, of jealousy, of violence in that person. That's why we call this practice selective watering. We only water the good seeds. We don't water the bad seeds. So this couple came, and during the Dharma talk, I noticed that the lady, she cried during the whole Dharma talk. I saw her there, I saw she was crying. After the Dharma talk, I went to go to the husband. I went to the husband. I said to him, your flower, your flower needs some watering. He understood right away what I was saying. He had received the teaching on selective watering, but he hadn't been practicing. So after the meal, they drove back to Bordeaux. It takes about an hour, an hour and a half to drive back to Bordeaux. And during that whole time driving, he practiced watering selective watering. He said things like, Darling, you have so many virtues. You have so many good seeds in you. How could I live without you? You are so kind. You have so much freshness. By the time they got back to Bordeaux, uh, she had completely changed, and the children were so surprised to see the transformation in her. So this is the practice of selective watering. So you will see the effect very quickly. Five minutes or ten minutes can be enough to water 
the good seeds in a person and make that person happy. So that, that kid in your class has many different seeds. Seed of violence, seed of anger, The seed of anger and violence are born from ignorance, from wrong perceptions. So if we look deeply, we can see that if that kid speaks and acts with violence, with anger, we can see right away that he's suffering a lot. And we can say this to ourselves: that kid is suffering a lot. Is there something I can do for him, for her? So this is, it's very important to ask ourselves this question. If you don't do this, his or her anger or violence will water the anger and violence in us. So we need to protect ourselves because all of us have that seed of anger that seed of violence, if we don't do anything, the anger, the violence around us will awaken the same seeds in us and we will become just the same. We don't want to do that. I don't want to suffer like that. I want to protect myself and the other person with kindness, with freshness. So, the essential thing is that when a kid provokes you with his violence by speaking or acting, we have to breathe and look at that kid. She's suffering a lot. That person is caught in anger and violence. and suffering, and I don't want to be like him or her. So what can I do to help? So what you can do first of all is breathe in, and during the in-breath, you recognize that in you too there is, in you there is the seed of kindness, of compassion, of love, and when you breathe out, you ask yourself, what can I do to help that kid to suffer less? And the answer will come right away. I need to find a way not to water his seed of anger, but to water his seed of kindness. And when we look at the other person, we can see the good seeds and the bad seeds. And when we look at ourselves, we also see good seeds and bad seeds. And we have the intention to water only the good seeds. I don't want to water my own seed of anger I don't want to water my seed of jealousy, of ignorance.
we can sign a kind of peace treaty with the other person, your friend. Do you have a friend? A boy or a girl? So you should sign a treaty of peace and happiness with that person. How do you do that? You talk to the other person and you say, My dear friend, you know that I have the seed. I have negative seeds in me. I have the seed of anger, jealousy, and violence. If you love me, please don't water those seeds. If you water the seed of anger, of jealousy in me, I will suffer. And if I suffer, you will suffer because we're friends. So please don't water the negative seeds in me. Please water the positive seeds in me. I do have good seeds in me. I have the seed of kindness. I have the seed of love. I have the seed of compassion, of understanding. And if every day you water those seeds, I will become a happy person. And being a happy person, with me being a happy person, you won't ever have to suffer. And I, I see in you good seeds and bad seeds. I am making the ter- determination, the promise, not to water the seed of anger in you. I promise not to water the seed of jealousy in you because I know that if I do that, you will suffer and I won't be able to be happy either. That's why I promise not to water the seed of anger in you. And I promise to water the seed of goodness, of kindness, of happiness in you. So we can sign a little promise about this. A husband and a wife, they can sign a peace and happiness treaty. A friend can sign this with another friend. Any two friends can do this, and this is the practice of meditation. So when you go back to school, this is how you can talk about meditation with your friends. Meditation can help you a lot to suffer less. So we should remember these practices of selective watering. I only water the good seeds in myself and I only water the good seeds in you. This is doable. So that's the summary. Here's the summary. Meditating means having the time to look with attention, with concentration, to be able to see the things that others can't see. There are good seeds in me and in you, and there are bad seeds in me and in you. Every day I want to water only the good seeds in myself and in you, and if you love me, you will do your best not to water the negative seeds in you or in me. And I make the promise to only water the good seeds in you. It's easy, right?
Thank you. So children, when you hear the sound of the bell, you can stand up and bow to the sangha before you go out. Dear friends, to deal with your difficulties in daily life, there needs to be a spiritual dimension in your life. All of us have difficulties that come up in daily life from time to time, so we need to have practices to resolve those difficulties and overcome obstacles that is a matter of practice. In the Buddhist tradition, we see that there's a kind of a body. We have our physical body, and we also have a practice body, a spiritual body. In Buddhism, we speak of a Buddha body, Dharma body, and Sangha body. So, uh, in addition to this physical body, we have a Buddha body because we have the Buddha nature in us. We have the seed of understanding, of love, of wisdom of compassion, and it is the Buddha in us in the form of seeds. So in Sanskrit we call that Buddha Kaya, the Buddha body. And with the practice, of meditation, we give the Buddha in us a chance to grow. There's a little Buddha in us. The Buddha nature, the capacity to understand, to love, to forgive, the capacity to be happy, and the capacity to make other people happy. Every person has a Buddha body in him or in her. We should give that Buddha body a chance. And there's also a Dharmakaya, a Dharma body. Dharma just means the practice. Dharma means the teaching. and the application of the teaching in our daily life. That's our dharmakaya. Every one of us has a dharma body. That's our practice body, our, the spiritual dimension in our daily life. If that body is weak, 
we cannot overcome the difficulties in daily life. We cannot deal with a suffering. We can't generate happiness for ourselves, for others. So we need we need to cultivate the Dharma body. We need to give it a chance. So we should come and participate in retreats like this one to be able to strengthen, to fortify, to reinforce that Dharma body, the spiritual practice. With this practice, the Dharma body will be robust enough to be able to overcome difficulties. We can handle difficult situations. So there is that body called the Dharma body in us, and we want to give that body a chance to grow. The Dharmakaya. And the Buddha spoke about the Dharmakaya. In the Buddha's time, there was a monk named Vakali. He was very attached to the Buddha, very attached to that physical body, the physical personage of the Buddha. He would go to Dharma talks, not really to listen to the teaching, but just to contemplate this beautiful body of the Buddha. And the Buddha recognized that attachment One day, Vakali was very sick. He was going to die. The Buddha came to visit him. And the Buddha asked him, My friend, Do you feel well in your body? Is there anything you regret? You will die soon. Do you have any regrets? Have you practiced well? Vakali said, Dear Buddha, I'm practicing well. I don't regret anything except one thing. And that is not to be able to sit and look at you, contemplate you. And the Buddha said, Vakali, this physical body will disappear one day. Because the physical body is impermanent, it will disappear one day. We should not be attached to this physical body. You already have received my Dharma body. I have transmitted to you the Dharma body, and that will remain with you. The Dharma body is much more important than the physical body. And the Buddha said that phrase, Dharmakaya, 
after the disintegration of the Buddha's physical body, his Dharma body still continues. So we have a physical body, and we have a Buddha body, and we have a Dharma body. The Dharma body, we received the seed. And with the practice, our Dharma body will grow. And if the Dharma body is solid, we can very well deal with the difficulties that come up in life. So the Dharmakaya, the Dharma body, is our practice. There's another body that's the Sangha body, Sangakaya. It helps our practice to practice with a Sangha, a community. We want to take refuge in the Sangha because the Sangha is a community of practitioners. Once they come together, they can generate a very powerful collective energy of mindfulness, of peace, of compassion that can help us to transform and to heal. With the Sangha, we can maintain our practice for a long time. If we practice alone, we may lose our practice in just a few months. So after we go back home, we should look around to identify the elements of a Sangha and build a Sangha around us so we can practice together and nourish the practice. So every practitioner should be a Sangha builder. The Buddha did that. After he was enlightened, he needed a Sangha to continue. career of the Buddha also required the presence of a Sangha. Without a Sangha, a Buddha cannot do a whole lot. He needs a Sangha. And we all, practitioners, we also need the Sangha. That's why I take refuge in the Sangha. That's not really a confession of faith. That's a practice. We should build a Sangha We should belong to a Sangha to be able to maintain our practice, keep it alive and strong. So every one of us possesses a physical body. Every one of us has a Buddha body, a Dharma body of practice, and a Sangha body. We need that Sangha body to nourish our Buddha body and our practice body. The Buddha should be a living Buddha, not just the historical Buddha, not just the Buddha in books, not just a Buddha statue. The Buddha has to be a living Buddha. And the living Buddha may be found in us. 
because we have a seed of understanding, a seed of compassion, a seed of wisdom. That is the living Buddha. Daily practice should help the Buddha in us to grow. If the Buddha in us has the chance to grow, we have a life that's happy, peaceful, abundant. So Buddha should be a living Buddha and not just a notion. The Buddha shouldn't just be an idea or a statue or a book. The Buddha has to be a living Buddha. We want to get in touch with the living Buddha in us every day. The Dharma should also be the living Dharma. Not just written Dharma in a book. <coughs> Not just Dharma on cassette or CD. Not just the spoken Dharma. We want the living Dharma. When you walk in mindfulness, you are embodying the energy of mindfulness. And every step helps you to touch the wonders of life in you and around you. And every step taken like that can generate freedom, joy, pleasure. And when you walk in this way, that's the living Dharma. You don't have to say anything, but that is the Dharma, the living Dharma. When I see a practitioner walking like that, I see the Dharma. And what you need is the living Dharma, not just the spoken Dharma or the written Dharma. And every day we should live the living Dharma. And the Sangha as well. The Sangha should be a living Sangha, a practicing Sangha. A community where everyone knows how to practice in order to transform and to heal. If a community or a church doesn't practice, that is not a Sangha. It may have the outer form of a Sangha, but not the substance. That's not a real Sangha. It's not a living Sangha. A living Sangha is a community in which every person has the capacity to generate mindfulness, concentration, insight, brotherhood and sisterhood, and joy. I think we are a living Sangha. Because together we are able to generate a collective energy of mindfulness and concentration 
and the children can feel it. And this is something that can nourish the children, that peace, that attention, that calmness generated by the practice of sitting and breathing. Children can feel that, and that's good food for them. At home, we should generate that energy as well. We can organize, we can practice in such a way that we, are, we also can practice that energy back at home. That's the living Sangha, to nourish one another. So a Buddha should be a living Buddha. The Dharma should be living Dharma. And a Sangha has to be a living Sangha. A living Sangha is the bearer of the Buddha and the Dharma. It carries within it the Buddha and Dharma. If you want to get in touch with the Buddha, with the true living Dharma, you can do that. In a living Sangha, a real Sangha, a living Sangha always carries within it the Buddha and the Dharma. And we can find the real Dharma in a Sangha. We can find the real Buddha in a Sangha. So building a Sangha is a very noble work. And we can use our life to build Sangha. Sangha builders. Because with a Sangha like that, many people can come and take refuge to heal and to transform. It's well worth our time and energy. We can use our time and energy to build Sangha for ourselves and to be a refuge for many others. And the Buddha offered us exercises for breathing to help us to take care of our body, to take care of our emotions, our perceptions, our mental formations, to be able to calm our suffering, to be able to to be able to transform suffering. There is a text that is called the Anapanasati Sutra, the Sutra on the Full Awareness of Breathing. On the Full Awareness of Breathing. In that sutra, the Buddha offered 16 exercises for our breathing. And if you practice according to those exercises, you will be able to strengthen 
reinforce your Dharma body. Improving our practice, the first exercise is recognizing our in-breath. Identifying our in-breath as in-breath and recognizing the out-breath as out-breath. It's very easy, very simple. Breathing in, I know it's an in-breath that I'm taking right now. Identifying the in-breath. Becoming one with your in-breath. Recognizing the presence of your in-breath. Your in-breath may last two, four, five, or six seconds. And during that whole time, you're aware that an in-breath is what's happening. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. And during those five or six seconds, you are concentrated on one thing only, the in-breath. The in-breath is the object of your mindfulness. Only one object, the in-breath. And all the cells of your body can join you in recognizing the presence of the in-breath. And that is a deep concentration. Breathing in, I know I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know I'm breathing out. So we may call the first exercise recognition of in-breath and out-breath. This exercise is very simple but very effective. It helps bring the mind back to the body right away. And it will help you to let go of the past and the future. We may have regrets about the past. We may have anxieties or fear about the future. If we come back to the present moment with our breathing, we are free of the past and the future. And one in-breath can free you. And you feel much lighter already just in a few seconds. If you are really concentrated on that in-breath, and the in-breath will allow you to establish yourself 100% in the present moment, if your practice is solid enough, it's like a miracle. And anyone can do it. It's also a very pleasant thing to do Your nose isn't plugged up. Your lungs are working very well. Why not breathe in like that and feel the pleasure of breathing? 
give yourself that pleasure with your in-breath. One in-breath can help to heal you, nourish you, liberate you of your worries. It's wonderful to feel present, alive, on this magnificent earth. There's pleasure. There's joy, happiness during that in-breath. If you can concentrate just on your in-breath, you will be able to get in touch with all the wonders of life in you and around you. So it's a very simple exercise, but it can be very deep. It all depends on how we practice. It gives us freedom. And joy. The second exercise, following. First recognizing and then following the in-breath and the out-breath. Let's suppose that my in-breath begins here at one end of the marker and ends at the other end, let's say, three or four seconds long. And during the whole length of my in-breath, I'm totally present with my in-breath. So let's say my finger represents my mind, my attention. Breathing in, I follow my in-breath all the way from the beginning to the end. There is no interruption because I am totally with my in-breath. I'm really concentrated on that in-breath. And that way, concentration can manifest. You are aware of your in-breath and you are aware of your out-breath. So you're aware and you are concentrated. It's The in-breath is the sole object of your mindfulness and your concentration. If your concentration is strong enough, you can begin to see things more deeply. Insight. You realize that you're alive, you're surrounded by wonders, and you contain wonders in you. And it is possible to enjoy life now. The conditions of happiness are already available, more than enough. And one in-breath can bring a lot of happiness, a lot of satisfaction, a lot of abundance. Thanks to mindfulness, thanks to concentration, and thanks to what you're able to see on the basis of that concentration and mindfulness. 
So the second exercise, breathing in, I follow my I follow my in-breath all the way from the beginning to the end. Breathing out, I follow my out-breath all the way from the beginning to the end. This is how we cultivate both mindfulness and concentration. And we can produce insight that will bring us a lot of joy and a lot of happiness. The third exercise, breathing in, I'm aware of my physical body. This is to recognize the presence of our physical body, to really bring the mind back to the body and become one with our body. When you have your mind and body together, then you're really anchored in the present moment. And life is available for you. Because in daily life, most of the time, the, mind is, the body is here, but our mind is somewhere else. Our mind is caught in the past, in the future, in our projects, in our worries. There is a lack of unity of body and mind. So with that in-breath, we bring the mind back to the body, and there you are, in the present moment. And the present moment is the only moment when life is available. The present moment is the address of life. Every in-breath, every step brings you back to the present moment so that you can touch life deeply. We want to live our life. How? With mindfulness. Mindful breathing, mindful walking. Come back and be one with your body. If you, your mind is one with your body, you realize, you may notice that there's not enough peace right now in your body. There may be a lot of tension, a lot of pain. Maybe you have allowed too many tensions and pains to accumulate in your body. And because of that, there are some unpleasant sensations arising every moment. So, realizing that you have tension, stress, pain in your body, then you're able to do something. When you're aware of it, you can release the tension and relieve the pain. So that's why the Buddha proposed the fourth exercise, which is calming the body. Breathing in, I calm my body. I release the tension 
in my body, releasing tension in the body. That is already a meditation on love addressed to your own body. We should learn to love ourselves. So loving ourselves begins with our breathing and our body. These are very concrete things. Our breath is a concrete physical thing. Our body is concrete. The mind comes back to be in touch with the body through the vehicle of the breath. Breathing in, I'm aware of my whole body. Breathing out, I release. I give my body permission to release tension. And in this way we learn to sit, to walk in a way that allows tension to be released. So in our sitting, we need to know how to release the tension. In our walking as well, we should know how to release tension. Walking from your tent to the restroom, you can walk in such a way that every step helps you release tension so that peace can be there in every moment, in every step, and everyone can do this. You walk as a free person. You establish yourself in the present moment and every step helps you release tension. Every step helps you to get in touch with the kingdom of God that is available in the present moment. So, in their form, these exercises are very simple. But if you practice with mindfulness, with concentration, you can go very far. You can touch life deeply. You can generate joy and peace. And being able to release tension in the body, we can reduce the pain in our body because pain is very related to tension. So reducing tension, we also reduce pain. Deep relaxation practice, you may have already participated in a session of deep relaxation guided by Sister Chang We can organize those at home as well. A member of the family can guide a session of deep relaxation at home once a day. And if you have five or ten minutes, you can lie down in the grass and do deep relaxation after maybe four hours of working already. You can do deep relaxation before eating your lunch. You use the in-breath and the out-breath, mindfulness, concentration, to give your body a chance to restore itself 
to renew itself by releasing tensions in the body. These first four exercises may be practiced at any moment in the day, even when you're driving the car, or when you're sitting on the metro train. We should know how to use our time to improve the quality of life through practice. These four exercises are for taking care of our physical body because breath involves the physical body and when we practice the fifth exercise <coughs> we move into the f- mm, area of feelings mindfulness of our feelings the fifth exercise is for bringing up a pleasant feeling getting in touch with a pleasant feeling a good practitioner can always produce invite a pleasant feeling a feeling of joy a feeling of happiness it's possible to produce joy it's possible to produce happiness with mindful breathing using our body and our breathing when you breathe in you bring your mind back to your body you're there established in the present moment you may realize that there are conditions of happiness already there because of forgetfulness you have not been recognizing these conditions but now you're waking up thanks to the practice of mindful breathing enlightenment awakening is the opposite of forgetfulness forgetfulness awakening mindfulness is already awakening is already enlightenment forgetfulness is dispersion in awakening in enlightenment there is mindfulness there's concentration and the opposite of awakening is forgetfulness we're not really there we're not really there in the present moment we are dispersed when we're not really there body and mind together when we are dispersed there's no true life there's a body there's a mind but there's no true life because the body and the mind are not together so when in breath helps us to get out of that forgetfulness leave that dispersion and touch enlightenment awakening with mindfulness with concentration with the practice of mindfulness we can recognize many conditions of happiness that are already available 
I am still young enough. I can still walk. I can breathe. I can run. I can contemplate the sky and nature. And in this way, we can produce a feeling of joy. So the fifth exercise, bringing about a feeling of joy. Touching joy. So a, an authentic, a true practitioner can produce a feeling of joy whenever she wants. You have the power to generate happiness, to generate joy for yourself and for the other person. With what? With awakening, with mindfulness. You recognize the conditions of happiness. Darling, do you realize how lucky we are? We're still young. We're still together. I can see. I can see the beauty of nature. There's so many things like this. We can bring this awakening, this enlightenment to ourselves and for the other person right there at home. Happiness is possible. Joy is possible. And then the sixth exercise is to bring about a feeling of happiness. So traditionally there seems to be a slight difference in Buddhist literature between joy and happiness. So the classic example given is that you have a person walking in the desert. That person has no more no more water to drink. Suddenly, he sees an oasis appear. He sees the image of the trees and the water. So that is the sensation of joy. Very soon, that person is going to be able to rest under the shade of the trees and drink the water. That is the feeling of joy. And when we have arrived at the oasis, we kneel down, we cup the water and drink it. That's happiness. So that's the slight difference between joy and happiness. When you breathe, Happiness is possible. When you walk, happiness is possible. When you take a shower in mindfulness, happiness is possible. When you sit with your loved ones, happiness is possible. This all depends on you. If you have awakening, if you have mindfulness, happiness and joy are possible. If you are not too dispersed, if you're not, but if you are 
not really there, then these things are not possible for you. So happiness and joy are made of a substance, and that substance is mindfulness, concentration. And this is very clearly stated in the teachings of the Buddha. Li is a Chinese word. It means letting go of something, dropping. And this is a way to find joy and happiness by letting go of the past and the future and even your projects. So we have the happiness, joy and happiness that come from dropping something, releasing. So this character means joy, and this character means happiness. Joy and happiness born from letting go. We need to know how to let go, to be free. When you're free, it's very easy to be happy, to be joyful. Freedom. And then we have the joy and happiness that are born from mindfulness. Niyam is mindfulness. Thanks to mindfulness, we can recognize the conditions of joy and happiness. So joy and happiness can be born from mindfulness. And then we have concentration, joy and happiness that are born from concentration. Concentration, giving birth, giving rise to joy and happiness. This is clear in the Buddhist teaching. Happiness is not exactly made from money, fame, power. Sex but rather from the capacity to let go, the capacity to be mindful, conscious, aware, and the capacity to have concentration. So we say mindfulness is a source of joy and happiness. Concentration is a source of joy and happiness, and letting go is also a source of joy and happiness. We can obtain all of those things through the practice. You're capable of letting go. You're capable of being here now. You're capable of concentrating. And these are sources of happiness, sources of joy. That is the purpose of these two exercises of mindful breathing. Breathing in, I know joy is possible right now. With awakening, with mindfulness, you recognize the conditions of joy, of happiness that are available in this very moment. The seventh exercise is for handling, for taking care for recognizing a painful feeling, a suffering, 
a painful feeling or emotion. There's a painful feeling. There is a strong emotion. A practitioner has to be capable of coming back to herself to be able to recognize the presence of that painful feeling of that difficult emotion. A practitioner doesn't try to run away. That is not the practice. People who don't practice mindfulness, they want to cover that pain, that suffering with consumption. We go look for something to eat, to drink. We want to listen to music. Turn on the television to to block out that suffering, cover it up. <coughs> but we who are practitioners, we don't do that. We know that we need to come back to ourself to be able to recognize the pain the suffering. Our suffering is like our little child. We have to be there for him or her. Hello. My little sadness. Hello. My little pain. I know you're there. I'm here for you. Recognizing and embracing the pain. And we're not afraid to do this because we are equipped with the strength of mindfulness and concentration. Without mindfulness, without concentration, we're very weak. We can have a lot of doubts, confusion about our suffering. We can be overwhelmed, but because we know how to practice mindful breathing, mindful walking, we are equipped with the energy and we're not afraid with that energy of mindfulness of concentration we're strong enough to be able to recognize and gently embrace our own pain a true practitioner should be able to do this we have to say hello to our suffering to our pain we should take that pain in our arms with a lot of tenderness. We have to take care of our pain. So the seventh exercise is recognizing the painful feeling, recognizing a suffering. And if we... Mm, if we're still new to the practice, maybe... We don't have enough experience yet. We can very well make use of the collective energy of the Sangha. That's why we need the Sangha. We come together with brothers and sisters in the practice, and we can say, Dear brothers, dear sisters, here's my pain, here's my suffering. 
And since I'm still new in the practice, I ask you to help me to recognize and to embrace the suffering and the pain in me. We open our heart. We let the collective energy of the Sangha penetrate into our heart to help us embrace the pain. And we will get a relief in some time. With the practice, we have enough mindfulness, enough concentration to be able to recognize and embrace the pain. So as a good practitioner, we should be able to recognize our suffering and embrace our suffering. So this, uh, the eighth exercise is for taking care of that suffering. We calm We bring a relief to our suffering with or without the presence of other practitioners. Just like a mom taking a suffering baby into her arms, the suffering baby is your pain, your anger, And the mom is your energy of mindfulness and concentration generated by your practice of mindful breathing and mindful walking. At first, the mom may not even know yet what's wrong, why the baby is crying, but simply the act of taking that baby into her arms with a lot of gentleness brings the relief. So in the beginning, you may not know exactly what is the cause of your suffering, your pain, but the fact that you can embrace your suffering with mindfulness, with concentration, already brings some relief. Because suffering is one energy. <coughs> mindfulness is another, a second energy. If you don't have that second energy, you can get lost in the suffering. But as there is this energy of mindfulness there to recognize and embrace, the Buddha is there. The Buddha is your mindfulness and concentration. So with this practice of recognizing and embracing suffering, we can very well bring relief through the seventh and the eighth exercises. And because the mom is concentrated on the child, she will soon realize what, is it, what it is that's not going right. If the child lost his bottle, or it needs some medicine, or the diaper is too tight, and then after that relief, we can go further with other exercises to help us look really into the roots, what caused that feeling, and we can transform. 
the situation that gave rise to the pain. And there are other practitioners who can help us and other exercises we can use. So we will learn the other eight exercises another time. So the eighth exercise is for calming, bringing relief, soothing the suffering. As a good practitioner, we know how to take care of suffering. We know how to bring about a feeling of joy and happiness for ourselves and for the other person. And when we practice like this, our Dharma body becomes very powerful. Dear friends, if If you go back home after one week or two in Plum Village, you may seek to continue your practice to strengthen and nourish your Dharma body. With a spiritual dimension in your daily life, you will be able to overcome the difficulties of life that come up from time to time. We can handle suffering and bring about joy and happiness. All these things are possible with the practice. (laughs) 